This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast. This message is called The Church's First Sermon, and our lead pastor, Jeff Yancey, is teaching through Acts 2, 14-41 as part of our Acts of the Apostles sermon series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. This morning, we are continuing on in our series through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where we are looking at the story of the early church for some fresh vision and inspiration as we re-engage in life together as a community of faith. And we're looking today at Acts 2, verses 14 through to 41, and Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where after the Holy Spirit had come through a sound of a mighty tornado-like wind, and after supernatural flames and tongues of fire suddenly appeared resting on every believer who was present, and after every believer who was there was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to miraculously speak in foreign languages, languages that they did not know or understand, testifying to the goodness of God to those who were present in their native tongues. After all that craziness, Peter, the leader of the apostles, he gets up and he begins to preach this epic, amazing sermon to some 3,000 people that had gathered there today. In fact, it's the first sermon, first Christian sermon ever preached in a sermon that contains the core of the Christian message and the core of the church's message and is a sermon that the Holy Spirit used in powerful ways to grow the church. I want to look with you this morning at that sermon. We're starting in Acts 2, verse 22, after quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel in order to explain what had just been happening there as the Holy Spirit had been poured out as promised. Peter gives the church's first official sermon ever, the very first Christian sermon. Look with me at what he said in this amazing epic sermon that uh, prompted quite a response from thousands of people. Verse 22 of chapter 2 says this, People of Israel, this is Peter speaking, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross, and you killed him. Now, skipping down to verse 32, After rooting what he was saying in the Hebrew scriptures, Peter continues in his sermon by saying this, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Now skipping down to verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Now listen, verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles there, Brothers, what should we do? This, in a nutshell, is the first Christian sermon ever. Peter's really offensive sermon on the day of Pentecost, where he flat out says to the thousands of people present, he says, You killed Jesus! You killed the Son of God. You crucified him. And yet, miraculously, they responded not by getting offended and defensive or angry, but by asking the question, Brothers, what should we do? How are we to respond? 
And now why did they respond in this way instead of getting all angry and defensive as you might expect them to do? Well, Luke tells us, doesn't he, at the beginning of verse 37 where he says these words. He says that Peter's words uh, pierced or cut their hearts. Or in other words, that the Holy Spirit deeply convicted them of their unbelief and their sin. That the Holy Spirit cut through the layers of their heart and convicted them, which is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do, didn't he? Where in John 16, verse 8, if you know the passage, Jesus told his disciples that when the Holy Spirit came, he would, quote, convict the world of its sin. That word convict, literally meaning, by the way, to cross-examine, just as a lawyer would cross-examine someone in a courtroom looking to expose any lies or inconsistencies in order to reveal the truth. This is what's happening in Acts too, as the Holy Spirit cross-examined their hearts, so to speak, and left them feeling convicted in their sin as a result, as Peter's words pierced their hearts and cut them like a knife. And now, what was it then that cut them like a knife? What was it that uh, pierced their hearts? What was it about Peter's words that convicted them? Well, pastor and, and author Tim Keller talks about what exactly it was that convicted them. He talks about two specific things that cut them. Two gut-wrenching realizations that, that would have pierced them, cut them to the core of their being, with the first thing being this. The first thing that they would have realized, the first thing that would have cut them was this. It was that they realized that they had been wrong about Jesus. They realized that they were wrong about Jesus. You see, in Peter and Jesus' day, there were a lot of different theories out there about who Jesus was. Uh, people wanted Jesus to be all kinds of things. They had lots of things they wanted Jesus to be. For example, some wanted Jesus to be a prophet and a prophet only, like a religious teacher who called people back to the faith of their fathers. Others wanted Jesus to be a political savior, freeing them from the tyranny and oppression of the Roman Empire, while others kind of just wrote Jesus off as a fake and as a phony, a manipulative uh, a magician of, of sorts who held this strange charismatic power over people, maybe even demonic power over people, and shouldn't be taken seriously. It's just some of the things that people wanted Jesus to be or thought that he was, but Jesus never conformed to people's expectations of him, did he? He didn't worry about what everyone else wanted him to be. Instead, you know what he did? He confronted their expectations. He confronted their expectations by directly claiming to be God and by forgiving people's sins as only God can do and by challenging the religious system of the day and claiming to be the temple and claiming to be the great I am and claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus confronted their expectations of him and they didn't like that very much. They didn't like the way that he talked about himself. They considered it to be blasphemous and so they crucified him. As a result, which is what makes Peter's words here towards the end of his sermon in verse 36 so stark, where he says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, for all the reasons that I just mentioned, to be what? He says, Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. The word Lord meaning God, not a prophet or a religious teacher, but God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, and the word Messiah, meaning the one and only savior of the world. Not one option among many, but the one and only Messiah, where like Peter says later on in Acts 4, which we'll look at more closely in a few weeks when we get to that part, in the book of Acts, he says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which 
which we can be saved. Meaning that there's only one way to be made right with God, one way to be saved, that he, Jesus, is the one and only Lord and Messiah. And these words, as Peter preached in Acts 2, they pierced the people's hearts, cutting them, convicting them to the core of their being as the Spirit of God revealed the gut-wrenching truth that they had been wrong about Jesus. And it makes me wonder, uh, do you think it's possible that people today in our world, maybe even some of us, could be wrong about Jesus as well? That just like people in Jesus' day, that we too have a certain mold or a specific box or category that we want Jesus to fit into. Do you think it's possible that we could be wrong about Jesus too? Well, of course it's possible. For example, in our, in our world today, many people, we're fine with the idea of Jesus being a moral teacher, aren't we? Even a great religious teacher like uh, Gandhi or Muhammad or, or Buddha, we're, we're fine with lumping him into that category and even picking and choosing some of the different things that he said or that he taught and that we think is relevant to us today. And some of us in our world today, we're fine even with the idea of Jesus being a prophet of some kind, where maybe he speaks on behalf of God without actually being God. And uh, many people today are certainly fine with Jesus being a spiritual option for people. And just like, you know, there's, you know, different religions out there and each religion is equal. Jesus is just one option amongst many. If that's what it means for you uh, to be spiritual, is to believe in Jesus, then good for you. He's one option among many. We're fine with those categories, with those boxes. But the reality is, is that Jesus would not and will not today let himself be lumped into those categories and those boxes, those molds. Those categories, they don't work for Jesus. And he invites us to either take him for who he claims to be or to reject him completely, which really are the only two real options before us as we look at the person of Jesus. It's either to reject him completely or accept him fully. Those are our two options, and that's about it. Years ago, Bono, the lead singer of U2, he actually captured this idea really well where in a book where he was being interviewed by an author, a book called Bono on Bono. I'm a huge U2 fan, by the way. And so when Bono says stuff, I, <laughs> I generally listen to it or read it. I'm always curious about what he has to say. He talked about this very idea. Look at what he said in this book, Bono on Bono. He said this, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot of things or a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a great teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not a prophet. I'm saying I am God in the flesh. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're just a bit eccentric, but we've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but not God, not the Messiah, because you know, we're going to have to crucify you if you say that. And he goes, no, no, I actually am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you have left, excuse me, so what you're left with is either Christ was who he said that he was, God incarnate, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson here. I'm not joking 
here, the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half a globe, half the globe, could have its fate cha changed when turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's a little bit far-fetched. Isn't that fascinating? That's Bono tapping into his inner C.S. Lewis, I guess, and C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, and lord trilemma, if you're at all familiar with that. But what ultimately Bono is saying here is he's saying what Peter is saying in the book of Acts. Peter here is saying that they killed him, but God resurrected him. And if that's true, if God did indeed resurrect him, then it doesn't really matter what category you and I might want to lump him into. What matters is who he says that he is. And whether or not we will be humble and open-minded enough to put aside our categories and our boxes and our molds and to just accept him for who he says that he is. Like as a silly but hopefully helpful illustration that I once heard a pastor named J.D. Greer give, uh, who's teaching, by the way, on this particular passage in Acts 2, has been really helpful for me in my sermon prep this week. And some of the content that I'm sharing here today uh, was shaped largely by his teaching on this. But as an illustration that he gave about this, he, he said this, imagine with me for a moment that someone came to you and said that they were going to write a biography about you. And you said, thanks. I didn't realize I was interesting enough to have a biography written about me, but hey, that's cool. Let's do it. And they say, yeah, I'm going to write about your life and how you dreamt about one day being an astronaut. That was your, your, your dream in life, to be an astronaut. And so you did everything you could possibly do to be an astronaut. You read astronaut books and you watched astronaut movies and you went to astronaut school and it was all about astronaut this and astronaut that. But then in the end, you failed. Uh, you didn't become an astronaut and, and now you live alone in a one bedroom apartment and you have like 18 cats and no friends and you work at McDonald's and you just hate your life. And you're like, wow, uh, that's quite the story, but none of that is even remotely true. Like I've never even thought about being an astronaut or gone to astronaut school. I don't care about astronaut stuff at all. And I hate cats and I don't eat at McDonald's. I've never worked at McDonald's. The whole thing that you're saying here, all of this, it's just absurd. It's not even true, even a little bit. And then they say, yeah, I know it's maybe not true, whatever, but I like this version of you better. You're so much more interesting as a failed astronaut than you are a married suburban middle-class father or mother or, or whatever the case may be. And so I'm just going to go with the astronaut version of you instead. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I wonder how that would make you feel. You'd probably be offended, wouldn't you? And understandably so, because other people don't get to write your story for you. And yet this is what people do with Jesus all the time, saying he's just a prophet. He's just a good moral teacher. He's just one options amongst many to God. And he's like, that's actually not who I said that I am. That's not my story. So for you, if you're in a place where maybe you're not sure what to believe about Jesus and about who he really is, let me ask you just a simple but really important question. That question is this. Are you humble enough and open-minded enough to believe that Jesus is who he said that he is? Or do you need to insist that Jesus is who you want him to be instead? Like maybe an astronaut or something. Because the people here in Acts 2, as Peter preached, they realized that they were wrong about 
Jesus. And the reason why they realized they were wrong with Jesus was simply because of this. It was because of the resurrection, because they realized that it was true that Jesus had actually risen from the dead and that made him who he said that he was. We see this quite clearly in verse 32, actually. Peter talks about the resurrection in a couple places, but in verse 32, he explicitly says in his sermon that God raised Jesus from the dead and we, the apostles, are all witnesses to it. And the, the crowd, the people listening, they knew they couldn't refute it. They knew they couldn't deny what Peter was saying, that it was not true. They knew it was true because keep in mind, that all of this is taking place in the very city, Jerusalem, where Jesus had been killed and buried only 50 days earlier. And that many of the people there present listening to Peter's sermon of the thousands of people there, several of them had been at Golgotha the day that, that Jesus had been crucified or they'd walked by and seen Jesus there. And for that matter, they knew where Jesus' tomb was, many of them would have known. And so for these 3,000 people who were there listening to Peter, you'd think that at least one of them could have said, no, Peter, you're wrong. I know where the tomb is. I know where he was buried. I can take you to the body. What you're saying is not true. But no one did that. No one offered that because they'd heard and they knew enough to know that something miraculous had indeed happened and that these apostles, Peter and the apostles, that they had been eyewitnesses to it and that they were now telling the truth. And so the Spirit spoke through Peter's sermon and the crowd realized in that moment that they had been wrong about Jesus and that while they wanted him to be one thing and while they had tried to fit him into their boxes and categories, his resurrection revealed him to be something or someone else entirely, God in the flesh, the one and only Messiah, and they were cut to the core of their being as a result. So what about you? Have you maybe been wrong about Jesus, tried to fit Jesus into a certain category or box that he does not fit in? Are you feeling cut maybe to the core of your being about this issue. That's the first thing that cut the audience that Peter was preaching to in Acts 2. The second thing then was this. It was that they realized that not only were they wrong about Jesus, but that they were actually responsible for killing Jesus as well. They were cut by this, gutted by this. It pierced their hearts. Notice how a couple times in his sermon, Peter, particularly in verses 23 and 36, in his bold and di direct way, he yells out to the crowd. He says, you killed Jesus. You nailed him to a cross and you crucified him. Like, could you imagine having been there and hearing someone yell this out to the crowd? Can you imagine me yelling this kind of thing to you? in a sermon just talking about how terrible you are and how evil that thing is that you did and how you're responsible for the death of Christ. It makes me wonder if maybe I should start doing that a little more because apparently it worked for Peter, but that's what he did here, right? He told the crowd that they were responsible for Jesus's death, that they had crucified the Messiah. Now, let me just say this because there's been some controversy controversy and confusion around these verses. So I just want to be really clear about this. Over the years, Peter's words here have been used in these verses uh, tragically in, in kind of anti-Semitic ways, claiming that the Jewish people killed Christ and Peter says so in Acts and so they should be held responsible for it. But listen, that is a very poor reading 
and poor understanding of Peter's words here. Peter's point is not to say that the Jews alone were responsible for Jesus' death, but rather that all of us together are responsible, that we're all complicit, including everyone who was present there that day and everyone who was not. Everybody, all of humanity, before and after that moment in time, we were all complicit, are all complicit in the death of Christ because ultimately it was our sin, all of our sin, that put Jesus on the cross. Peter, the Acts 2 preacher himself, says just this in one of his letters where in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he, quote, uh, he quotes the prophet Isaiah by saying this. He says, He, Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. His point being that it was all of humanity's sin that nailed Jesus to the cross and that we are all complicit in it. Not just one group, not just the Jews or the Romans or any other group, but all of us, all of humanity together. Years ago, uh, when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, there's a graphic scene uh, of the nails being hammered into Jesus's hands. The whole movie, of course, is graphic, but I remember that scene in particular. I don't know if you saw the movie. It's a hard movie to watch, but it's certainly an important one uh, to watch if you haven't. Um, there's a scene, though, with the, the nails being hammered into Jesus's hand. And do you know who held the nails for that scene? It was actually the director of the movie, M Mel Gibson. And do you know why Mel Gibson chose to hold them? He, he held them as a symbol of his responsibility for his role in putting Jesus on the cross is because he understood that he and that we all were re responsible for the death of Christ because of our sin. He understood that it was his sin and our sin together collectively that held him there. And so he held the nails himself as a symbol, as a reminder that he was responsible as much as anybody else for the death of Christ. That's what Peter is saying in his sermon here when he yells out, you killed him. He's saying that we killed him. We're all responsible. And these words, they pierced their hearts. Now, now I wonder, um, has your heart been pierced by this realization as well? Like, do you get, like really get that it was your sin and your selfishness and your pride, just as it was mine, that put Jesus on that cross, that Jesus died for you. Do you get that or not? Because when you do, when you truly get that, you know what happens as a result? You are cut to the heart. The truth of that pierces your heart, not because you think that you broke God's rules, but because you realize that you broke God's heart. And there's a big difference between the two. And you just want to desperately be made right with God once again. Have you been cut? in this way, not in a shame-based way, not, not condemned, but cut, convicted by the Spirit of God about your sin. Well, that's what happened here in Acts 2, is the Spirit of God convicted the crowd of being wrong about Jesus and for being responsible for Jesus' death because of their sin. So the question then is, what did the crowd do? in response, right? That really is the question, right? It's not, it's not just enough to feel convicted or to feel bad about our sin. We must respond to that conviction in order for it to be authentic. We must act. And so what did they do? What did the crowd do in response? Well, 
after they ask the question, brothers, what should we do? Peter tells them what it is that they should do. And he says this in verse 38. This is true for us too, by the way, not just for them, but for all of us. Look at what he says. He says, each of you must first repent of your sins and turn to God. Now this word repent, it means literally to change your mind, to come into alignment with the truth. Or in other words, it's to admit that you have been wrong about God and wrong about Jesus and wrong also about yourself. That you actually are a broken, sinful person in need of saving and that you can't save yourself by just being a good person or trying really hard. That you need a savior. And that person's name, that savior's name is Jesus. That's the first thing Peter says that they and we must do. He says, each of you must repent and turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Uh, and then also be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The forgiveness of your sins, which ironically is why Jesus died in the first place, isn't it? It's why he allowed himself to be murdered and crucified on the cross. It was for the forgiveness of of sin so that we could be set free from the power of our sin and shame and just walk in new life in him, which is what ultimately I know we also desperately want, isn't it? We want to be free. We want to be set free from the things that are weighing us down, from our burdens, from our sins, from our shame, from our guilt. Peter says here, he says, if God has pierced your heart, if God's truth has cut through you like a knife, then here's what you have to do in response. You need to repent by aligning yourself with the truth. I know that that word repent is a bit of a churchy word and people, street preachers like to yell that at people. It just means to align yourself with the truth, to change the way that you think. First, you need to repent. Secondly, you need to seek forgiveness in the cross of Christ, demonstrating, Peter says, that de uh, demonstrating that forgiveness by being baptized in water, which ultimately is what baptism represents, isn't it? It symbolizes salvation. It symbolizes forgiveness that we have been forgiven for our sin and going under the water we're dying to our sin and then in coming out of the water we're coming up a new creation a forgiven person in Christ that's what baptism represents that's what it's all about which as a side note it's been a little while since we've had a baptismal service as a church thanks to COVID and we'd love to change that we'd love to have a baptismal service again real soon. And so if God is stirring something in you, if your heart has been pierced at all, if you are feeling cut, convicted at all by this, if maybe you're not yet a Christian and you're deciding, I need to get on board with this thing. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Or maybe you're a new Christian, but you haven't been baptized yet. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and you just haven't taken that step. Whatever your story is, if you've yet to be baptized and you feel led to take that step, let's talk about it because this is a critical step in a life of faith for every single believer. Let's make it happen. Let's have a baptismal service again real soon as a church family. Because that's our calling. That's the invitation that Peter gives us in response to the conviction of the Spirit saying, each of you must what? Repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he goes on and he says, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is what happens when you come to faith in Christ. God gives you his Holy Spirit, as we talked about a little bit last week, right? He fills you with his life. Isn't that an amazing thing that when you come to faith in Christ, when you surrender your life to Jesus, that God fills you with himself. He fills you with his life. Amazing. 
Verse 39, let's read on. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those who are far away, us included. All those who have been called by the Lord your God. Meaning that this good news, this promise of the Holy Spirit, this message of hope and salvation and forgiveness and repentance, it's for everybody, for all time, not just for those who are present, but for all of us. As we turn to Jesus as our Lord and Messiah, we are welcomed in. We are grafted in to the family of God. This is a promise for us here too. This is a message, not just for the people who are present, but for us too as well. And then verse 40, then Peter continued preaching for a long time. I love that because it just tells me as a preacher that preaching for a long time is biblical. And if you don't like it, you just got to get over it because it's in the Bible. (laughs) Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, listen, save yourselves from this crooked generation, meaning don't waste your life, right? This is Peter's discipleship message. If you're going to uh, uh, repent and be baptized as a follower of Jesus, then you got to live as a follower of Jesus. So don't waste your life. Don't follow the culture. Don't live like everyone else. Don't give in to the pressures of society, but follow Jesus instead. That's what he's saying. Live a life worth living in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in the last verse, of this amazing passage on the day of Pentecost. Look at what happened. Look at how people responded to Peter's spirit-filled message where he presented the gospel to people. Look at what happened. Verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. About 3,000 in all. 3,000 men plus women and children. 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 people added to the church that they surrendered their lives to Jesus, were baptized and became followers of Jesus in this new community called the church. Isn't that amazing? Like, I, I wonder what that baptismal service would be like. I get tired after baptizing a handful of people because I'm a big guy and putting people underwater, pulling them out. You go, whew, what are 3,000 people though in one day? My goodness, I can't imagine having to do that. But I would gladly do that if God were to so uh, make that possible in our church. 3,000 people were added to the church's number that day. 3,000 people responded to the good news of Jesus as presented in Peter's first sermon. This was the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church on the day of Pentecost. And really, it's this sermon that the Christian church has been preaching ever since, or at least has been called to preach ever since. It's the message of the gospel, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sin, and the message that in Christ, each and every one of us can be made new and given new life in him, that our past does not need to define us anymore. Even our present challenges don't need to define us, that we can be adopted into the family of God, that we can be followers of Jesus and live lives of meaning and purpose. I I wonder if you know that message. If you've personally received that message for yourself, do you know the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy of Jesus? Have you had your heart cut by the Spirit of God like this? And are you living in to the message of Jesus today? Because you can. This invitation that Peter gives, it's, it's available to you and to me if we would just surrender our lives to Jesus, if we would just ask the same question that these people asked. Brothers, sisters, 
what should we do? Because it's not enough just to feel convicted about something. We must respond in faith. And so I wonder, after everything we've talked about here this morning, about being wrong about who Jesus is and about being complicit in the death of Christ and how this early church responded and repentance and forgiveness, how is God inviting you to respond this morning? What's the invitation that God would be making to you in light of what we've talked about here this morning, in light of this amazing first sermon ever preached in the Christian church on the day of Pentecost? Don't let this moment go by. If your spirit, if your heart is being cut by the Spirit of God, respond. Have the courage to step out in faith and respond. Repent. Experience forgiveness in the cross of Christ. Become a follower of His. And maybe take the step of baptism too. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, that's our heart. That's our desire. We want to be faithful to You. We want to respond to the good news of Jesus each and every day. We recognize this morning that there may be people who are watching or tracking with us in person as, as we gather on Sunday morning who don't know you, who have not yet repented of our sins and experienced your forgiveness and are not living a life worth living, really. Um, we're lost. God, would you give them the courage to say, I I'm done living this kind of life. Would you cut their hearts, pierce their hearts, convict them by your spirit and call them to yourself? Give them the courage to respond. Give us the courage to respond for others who do know you, but have lost our way a little bit, have made our life about something else. We have let this crooked generation kind of pervert us or, or kind of influence us a bit too much. We're not really being faithful as followers of you. God, would you bring us back to yourself in your kindness and your gentleness and your love? Bring us back to yourself. And God, would your spirit work in such powerful ways through our church that we would boldly declare this message, the same message that Peter declared, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sin, of healing and wholeness in you, of salvation. Would you use our church to draw many people to you? So we want to be a church, just like this church in Acts 2 was, a church that is used by your spirit to draw many to Christ. Use us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Give us courage to respond where our hearts are being pierced by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with Jeff continuing on in our act series with a message called Gospel Formed Community. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringauto.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast. <laughs>